You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Would you take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 11? Luke chapter 11, and if you don't have your Bible with me, as always, you can grab one of those Bibles in the seat backs in front of you and turn with me to page 869. 869, Luke chapter 11. We're going to be reading through Luke 11, 1 through 4. And as you are turning there, I just want to um, welcome you and to wish you a happy new year. Uh, my name is Ken Heiser. Pastor Jeff is away this weekend. I serve on the elder team. And what's more, I even have the privilege, the immense privilege of ministering along with our young adults in our AYA ministry. And I wonder if we have any of our AYA group with us here this morning. They're usually over here on my right side. Your left, they're a great group. Can I just brag on our young adults for just a second? Will you permit me to do that? I think we have some incredible, incredible young adults. They just impress me so much. Not just with their commitment for the Lord Jesus Christ and their commitment to each other, but especially in their commitment to serve in our church body. You've probably seen many of them serving all across the various ministries in our church body, and, and they really always challenge me to keep growing in my own walk with the Lord because of their example. And I would just encourage you, if you haven't had the opportunity, just to get to know as many of them as you can, because I'm sure that if you do, their enthusiasm for Christ will rub off on you. Let's read together Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Luke 11, 1 through 4. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Many of you are familiar with the Lord's Prayer. It's one of the most well-known passages of Scripture in all the Bible, and of course, Uh, It really isn't the Lord's Prayer as much as it is the prayer that the Lord gave to his disciples as a model for prayer. You're probably more familiar with the version of this prayer that we find in Matthew chapter 6. You know, there's some discussion among theologians whether or not the version that we see here in Luke 11 and the one we see in Matthew 6 are the same occasion, occasion or perhaps different occasions. But I suppose it doesn't really matter since they don't contradict. Matthew's version actually seems to have more meat on the bones, as it were. But I really think that Luke's version here in Luke chapter 11 provides a context, a very important context for us that we don't get anywhere else for how the Lord is now going to teach his disciples regarding prayer. And that's the first thing that we want to see this morning together, that Jesus himself provides the context for prayer. And we'll get to our big idea in just a few moments, but just look at the context that Jesus is providing In the very first words of Luke 11, Luke writes, Now Jesus was praying. Those four words are profound for me. Jesus was praying. Now, of course, we all know Jesus prayed. But when I read Jesus was praying, those words tend to go right at the jugular vein of my own self-sufficiency. Do you know what I mean? We're four words into the text this morning, and already I am feeling the great need to grow. I have great need to mature in so many areas of my life because how much of our lives are we running off of our own energy, 
off of our own self-sufficiency, our own knowledge, our own wisdom. Jesus, the text says, the God-man was praying. For years and years, I've struggled a bit with messages on prayer. I don't know if you're like me. Every time I hear someone speak about prayer, I sort of recoil a little bit. I kind of want to tune it out just a little bit because they make me feel guilty. There's a rebuke every time I hear someone speak on prayer because I know, I know I need to pray more. I want to pray more. But I think I've learned by now that guilt and shame, while they may be effective in jump-starting me into changing a direction in my life, they're poor at sustaining a persisting and lasting transformation for me. I need something more. And when we look at Jesus here in our text, we realize that there is something about him that is just so beyond Jesus regularly escaped from everything and from everyone to pray. We know that. There were actually times in the scriptures where the disciples basically had to form a search party to go locate the Lord Jesus because it was his habit to rise up in the middle of the night before light and to go into a place of solitude to commune with his Father. This passage is likely one of those occasions. We're not given all the details here. But his disciples, it appears, went out looking for him, and they found him. And when they found him, they watched him pray. And when he was finished, one of them asked, Lord, teach us to pray. Please teach us to pray like you pray. We want, to, we want what you've got. It's an interesting request, isn't it? These were Jewish men. They would have known all about prayer, right? They would have seen and heard a lot of prayer throughout their lives. They grew up with prayers being offered all the time throughout the day before meals, at the beginning of the Sabbath in the synagogues. The Jews, as a habit, prayed three times a day at the third, sixth, and ninth hour. They knew all about prayer, but these men, in watching the Lord Jesus pray right before them, saw something different. They saw something otherworldly when they watched him pray. Years ago, when Mindy and I were in Italy as missionaries, we started an evangelistic Bible study in our home together with my friend and co-worker Zlato. Now Zlato is a gypsy. He's a Rom gypsy and the Roma people live all over Europe and, and as a population Europe tends to despise the gypsies and avoid them because of their less than honest lifestyle. Well Zlato was the first gypsy in his whole clan to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ through a missionary. And I wish I could tell you his story. But God has used Lato to lead so many people to the Lord. He's led his father, his mothers, his brothers, his sisters, his cousins, his uncles, his aunts, numerous people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there we were in our home preparing to receive some of our unsaved friends and contacts for our study. And Lato and I remember we were talking about how can we connect these people? How can we point these people to the Savior tonight? And I will never forget what Lato told me. He said, Ken, you know, one of the things God has used in my witness over the years has simply been praying for people and praying with people. He said, you'll you'll be surprised how many unsaved people, how many people who don't even believe in God will be open and even appreciative of the fact that you would think to pray for them. And when you do, it's amazing what God does. As they hear you pray for them, oftentimes people would tell Zlato after, after he prays with them, wow, I've never heard anybody talk to God like you talk to God. 
You talk to them as if you know him personally. It was something they've never heard before. And actually, I think that's what we see happening here in Luke chapter 11. These Jewish disciples knew about prayer. They had participated in prayer all their lives. But they saw something so distinct in the way that Jesus prayed. There was something there that they had never seen before. He prayed as one who knew God personally. There was intimacy. There was dependency. There was expectancy in Jesus' prayer. And no matter how intense Jesus' ministry calendar became, he always made it a priority. He didn't let anything get in his way to go spend his time alone with the Father in prayer. He loved to pray and he longed for it. Somehow for Jesus, prayer was feeding his soul like food fed their stomach. And they wanted to know that. And so they said, teach us to pray. And these words, now Jesus was praying, to me they feel like a sledgehammer coming down on an anthill. You know what I mean? When it comes to my self-sufficiency, when it comes to my self-reliance, those things get utterly destroyed when we come to moments like this in the pages of Scripture. Jesus was praying. So, so what about me? What about you? This is Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's the eternal Son of God. Is there anyone more knowledgeable than Jesus? Is there anyone more powerful than Jesus? This is the Jesus of whom John wrote in his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, he was with God. Jesus is the creator. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Over the last several weeks in our Advent messages, Pastor Jeff has been going through Isaiah 9, and we've been getting a clear view of the Lord Jesus there as well. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the the almighty God, the everlasting Father, the the Prince of Peace. In a few weeks when we return back to our study in Revelation, we're going to see that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the one who has a name that is exalted above every other name. And in addition to all of that, Jesus is, is a person of prayer. There's something there. There's something there for Jesus in his prayer that wasn't there for these disciples. And I I think as we take an honest inventory of our own lives and we consider our own time alone with God, we'll see that there is something there for Jesus that isn't really there for us. When I hear the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray my mind goes to Acts chapter 8. We've been studying through the book of Acts in the Aya group over this fall. And in Acts chapter 8, you're going to find uh, a guy named Simon. He was a magician. He followed the, the apostles. And he saw them doing great things through the power of the Holy Spirit. And basically, when he sees that, he says, I want some of that. Give me some of that. He actually offers to pay them cash for it. He says, hey, Give me some of this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And of course, Peter gives him a strong rebuke. You can't buy the gift of the Spirit. You can't shortcut the process with money. Peter actually rebukes him and says, you have to get your heart right with God through repentance and faith. And I think in the same way, what I believe we see Jesus doing in his reply to these men as they come across him praying is to actually shift their focus off of praying like Jesus. You know, they saw Jesus praying, and I think they probably said, you know, we want to do it that way. We want to learn your time, your place, your method. We want to pray like you do. Say the things you do. Learn how to do it. Can you give us the how-tos? And Jesus is saying, listen, 
before you even get to the what and the how and the why, you need to connect to the who of prayer. You'll never pray like me until you connect to the who of prayer. And again, actually, that is our big idea this morning. The key to prayer is not about the what, the how, or the why of prayer as much as it is about the who of prayer. And we've seen the context. The context is Jesus himself. He provides the context for prayer because he is the person of prayer. And boy, I wish, there was, I wish we had time. There's so much I wish I could share for, from this passage for you this morning. But we're actually going to keep it really simple. And my AO group is going to be really surprised. We're actually only going to cover one word. One word this morning. And you know, they say, I don't even know who the they are. Do you guys know who the they are? Whoever the they are, they say that today you will only remember about 10% of what I share with you. So I'm only going to give you one word. Can you remember one word? My hope is that by focusing us in on this one word, that you'll be able to remember it, you'll be able to meditate on it, and in 2023, that you will live with a growing awareness of it. But before we get to that word, what I hope for us to do is to address the elephant in the room. Do you guys see it? Not yet, huh? It's right there. Now Jesus was praying. That word, that phrase, Jesus was praying, actually can bring out some questions for us. And one question is this, and this moves us to our second point, Jesus proves the case for prayer. He doesn't only provide for us the context, he is the person of prayer, but now he's going to actually prove for us the case of prayer, and the case of prayer is found in who Jesus is. Now Jesus was praying. When you, There's a theological elephant, I think, in the room right now that we really have to recognize before we go on, and I'll tell you, those first four words bring out some questions for me. One question is this, if Jesus is God, then how or why would he pray to God? And another question that is parallel to that is referring to God's sovereignty and prayer. I want you to just consider how God reveals himself to us. Here to sin, we make no apologies for teaching what the Bible presents about who God is. God is sovereign. I want you to listen to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. And I'll put these on the screen so that you guys don't have to get tired trying to turn there and keep up. But we're going to go through these quickly. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and what? For him. Guess what that means? That means that God holds absolute claim of ownership over all things. And that includes you. You this morning. God owns you. You were created and you exist for him. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens, and listen, he does all that he pleases. Our God is the only being in all the universe that truly holds free will. And we need to accept that. This is who our God is. What about Psalm 33, verse 11? The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. What that is telling us is that God is in complete and total control for all of the outcomes of all things. He's not up there wringing his thumbs, biting his nails, worrying how it's all going to turn out. His plans do not change. There is no new event. There is no new information that can alter what God has already determined to do. Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 10. Remember this. And stand firm, 
Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So you see, God's sovereignty is not simply that he knows what will happen in the future. No, that would make him a slave to time. Our God is not a slave to time. He doesn't dwell in time. He is the father of eternity. It is that he has determined instead what will happen end from beginning. He has planned all of it, and he doesn't change his plan. Let's just look at one more since we've been studying through Acts with our young adults. Acts chapter 4, verse 24 through 28. I love this passage. This passage comes after Peter and John had been arrested for preaching the gospel. They had been released, and now they're reunited with the disciples and the other followers of Jesus, and they immediately join together in corporate prayer. And this is what they say. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. David was led by the Holy Spirit (coughs) to prophesy of the very events that took place in Jerusalem the week that Jesus was crucified. Verse 27, for truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, listen, to do whatever your hand, and your plan had predestined to take place. This concept of God's sovereignty really changes things, doesn't it? It's really challenging for us. Look at verse 27 up there. Who gathered against Jesus in Jerusalem? There were four groups. There was Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel. And they all came against Jesus that week. There was a betrayal. There was false accusation. There were sham trials. There was a beating. There was floggings. There was more beatings. Eventually there was a corporate cry from the people to crucify this Jesus on a Roman cross. They availed themselves of their own oppressors to go after Jesus. And then eventually there was Pilate at the very top who authorized all of it. And all those people made their own choices and every one of them is culpable. And yet, verse 28 says what? In the end, what were they doing? Whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. Do you guys see the elephant yet in the room when it comes to prayer? When you and I are confronted with the God of Scripture as he reveals himself, all of a sudden we begin to wonder, why pray at all? Like, what's the point? And when you go to the parallel passage in Matthew 6 to our text this morning, where Jesus is there preaching and teaching on prayer, there in verse 7 and 8 in Matthew 6, he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. This is what religion produces, isn't it? They're the major word religions today. They're all about repetitious, vain prayers. Five times a day, praying toward Mecca. And Jesus is saying, look, no. 
It's not about that at all. He says, in fact, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. My dad, who's with the Lord now, he uh, admitted to me many years ago after the sudden death of my stepmother that for all of his adult Christian life, he had never prayed. And I was shocked. I mean, I was really surprised to hear this. But I think his reason for that is being felt right now in this room as we just sampled just a few of those passages from the word of God about who our God is. He asked himself, he actually told me the reason he struggled with prayer is that he didn't think it mattered. Why should I pray? He asked. By the way, for the last 10 years of his life before the Lord took him home, he became a joyful man of prayer. But listen, if you're feeling that theological struggle this morning and you find yourself asking this question, man, if, if God is sovereign and, and if he's already determined the end from the beginning and if he already knows what I'm going to ask before I even ask him, like, I don't get it. I don't get it. What, what is the point? If that's where you are today, can I just encourage you that right now you are actually right on the threshold of understanding the key to prayer? And what is the key of prayer? I'll have the guys put it on the screen. The purpose of prayer is ultimately not about receiving, but about relating. And that actually helps us, I think, understand those first four words of our text. Doesn't it? Now Jesus was praying. Why did Jesus pray? He prayed because of relationship. Pure, personal, powerful, and eternal relationship. The prayer communion that Jesus prioritized and patterned throughout his life pointed away from all the vain repetitions of words that so often populate the prayers of men and women today. And they pointed toward something real, something personal, powerful and passionate connection with God, the likes of such no one had ever seen before. This is the eternal Son of God. And we need to understand something, that the eternal Father and the the eternal Son have always enjoyed an eternal relationship. There's a biblical doctrine that theologians know as the eternal Sonship of Christ. And what that is simply referring to is this, that, that Jesus, the second person of the triune God, has always existed from all eternity as the Son, the eternal Son. Jesus is the Son who in John 1, who in Colossians 1, in Hebrews chapter 1, is the Son through whom the whole universe was created. In fact, Pastor Jeff touched on another aspect of this. He is the Son that was sent. He was the Son before he was even sent. Galatians chapter 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Jesus, according to Hebrews 13.8, you know the verse, don't you? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The eternal Son of God is unchanging in his divine attributes. He has always been, he always is, and always will be the eternal Son of God. So when Jesus called the Father, Father, that word was not just a universal title, but it was a term of affection. It was a term of pointing to deep relationship. Father, for Jesus, is overflowing, for us at least, with what are inscrutable implications of a love that has been shared 
from all eternity between the Father and the Son. I love being a dad. It's, it's amazing. And I know that all of you dads out there will understand what I'm about to say, but being a dad is, there's nothing like it. And if you're not a dad here this morning, I don't think you can truly grasp the depth of what I'm about to say, but the love that sometimes I feel as I look toward my children, it just causes the heart within me want to burst, almost explode out of my chest. There's so much love there for my kids. And if we were able to take the love that exists between fathers and kids, that look in this room, and the fathers and children in this room, and we were to take all that love, we were to bottle it up, and then we were to go out to all the universe, and all the rest of the world, and bottle up all the love that exists between fathers and their children, and we were to bring that all together, and then we were to compare that love to the eternal bond that exists between the eternal father and the eternal son. It would be as though one grain compared to all the sand on the seas of the ocean. It's that eternal bond of relationship that these disciples were witnessing. Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine seeing Jesus pray? Hearing him pray, experiencing what it is for the eternal Son of God to commune with the Father? I mean, so often these are just words on a page for us. But man, I think these disciples felt it. They tangibly felt the glorious connection that existed between the Son, and the Father as they watched Jesus pray. And that's more than any one of us here can imagine. But I think it proves the case for prayer. Prayer is about relating to God. And that brings us to our third point. Jesus points to the climax of prayer. He's shown the context of prayer. He is the person of prayer. He himself provides that context. He proves the case of prayer. Because the eternal bond of relationship between the Father and the Son gives the reason for prayer. And now this is where it really gets exciting for us. When Jesus responds to this request of theirs, Lord, teach us to pray. What he does is he actually invites these men in. He welcomes them in to share with him in this bond of relationship that he has enjoyed for all eternity. He says, come right on in. And now we come to our one word. You ready? It's right there in the text. Do you guys see it yet? Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father. The fatherhood of God, I'm convinced you will see, is the climax of prayer. Jesus took this request from these disciples. Lord, teach us to pray. We want to pray like you do. And he took their request and he used it to totally revolutionize the way they understood and saw who God is. He didn't just teach them a method. He led them to the who of prayer. And I really want, want you to sense the significance of what Jesus is saying here. The who of prayer is Father. It's Father. I don't know that we can fully appreciate how impactful this is unless we do a little bit of work to try to understand the, the biblical and historical context uh, surrounding what's going on here. But what you need to understand is that while the concept of father uh, is found in the Old Testament scriptures and was in the mind of the, the Jews of Jesus' day, their concept of God as father was actually limited to seeing God only as a, as a universal, as a corporate father. They didn't understand God as father in an individual or intimate way. They saw it rather God as father of the nation, father of the covenant people of Israel, his chosen people, or perhaps father of creation. 
But the title father in reference to God in Palestinian Judaism was never individual. It was never intimate. In the Old Testament, in fact, and among the Jews of Jesus' day, God revealed to his people his covenant name. You know what his covenant name is, don't you? What was the name that he revealed to his people? It's, it's Yahweh. Now think about what Yahweh is pointing to. Yahweh is actually pointing the Jewish people to who God is in relation to himself. Yahweh is pointing to God as the great I am, the self-sufficient one, who he is in relation to himself, but that name doesn't actually connect the people to who God is in relation to them. We don't actually see that until Jesus comes on the scene. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he flips it all upside down. He turns the script upside down. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. Just get a simple concordance or just start reading in the New Testament Gospels, and you'll see that Jesus teaches that God is not unapproachable, but he is near. He is Father. What's fascinating is that when addressing God as his Father in his prayers, he used the Aramaic word Abba to address God. Jesus spoke Aramaic. Aramaic's very similar to Hebrew. But the New Testament is written in Greek. But once in a while we see a Greek word transliterated in shown in what it would have sounded like in Aramaic. And that word, in this case, would have been Abba. But you, biblical scholars are united in affirming that the Greek word for father used in this and other passages where Jesus prayed actually corresponds to that Aramaic word. So when you look at the Greek New Testament and you read through these prayers of Jesus in the Gospels, we see the word Father, but we understand that that's actually corresponding to what Jesus would have actually said in person in Aramaic, Abba. And Abba would have clearly been understood as a very personal and familiar way to address a father. It's an intimate term that conveys a childlike familiarity coupled with trust, coupled with obedience and submission. It's more than just the word daddy. A lot of people say Abba means daddy. That's not the full picture of it. There is certainly that tone, that approachability, that familiarity, like a child can come and just jump on the lap of his daddy and call him daddy. That is there, and God wants us to know he is not unapproachable. You don't have to go anymore through the sacrificial system to arrive and to draw near to God. He wants you to understand that he is your daddy, but it's more than that. Abba actually carries uh, an intimate tone, but it's actually saying more like, you're my daddy and I trust you and I'm confident in you and so I will do what you tell me. Consider with me the reaction the Jewish hearers in John 5 had after he healed the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. You guys recall that account? It was the Sabbath day and Jesus heals this man and so the Jews were upset at Jesus because you're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath, right? And they criticized him. And so Jesus, in response to their criticism, in John chapter 5, verse 17, says, My father is working until now, and I am working. Now you and I, as Western 21st century evangelical Americans, we read that and we say, what's the big deal? But I think we have to actually, to feel the weight of this, we have to get into the Jewish mind and understand the Jewish perspective of the day. How did they actually receive Jesus' reply, my father is working? Well, John doesn't leave, us, leave it to us to guess. He actually records their response. He writes, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus, 
and calling God his father and saying, my father, and praying to God as father was to the Jewish mind a total no-go zone. You don't do that. That is blasphemy. They revered the name of God. They wouldn't pronounce the name of God. God to them was transcendent. In many ways, God was unapproachable except through the sacrifices. To speak of God as my father individually, the way that Jesus did, that was revolutionary. In the Old Testament, God is never prayed to as Abba, Father. But once Jesus is on the scene, it all changed. I want you to listen to this quote from J.I. Packer. The guys will put it on the screen there. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. He says, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? The question, he writes, can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. That's profound, isn't it? He goes on to write, if they go to the next slide, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. Think about this. Find out how much he makes of of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers and indeed the whole course of his life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. One word this morning that you need to take with you. Just one. And I wonder, can we try it? Can we all try saying it together on the count of three? What is that one word? Three, two, one. Father. Good job. I didn't have to repeat it. Father. Man, I want you to see this morning that the goal of this message is not to get you to pray more. It's not to get us to pray more. That would be missing the point entirely, wouldn't it? The solution to prayerlessness in our lives is not simply to pray more. That'd be like telling someone who's depressed, just stop it. Just be happy more. No, we need to get to the root. We need to get to the root. If you struggle to spend time with God and private and personal community each and every day, I would suggest that it's not primarily a matter of poor time management. It's not a matter of a lack of determination or resolve on your part. I would actually suggest to you that the reason you struggle today to relate to God personally and privately has to do with the fact that your view of God is deficient. There's something missing, something that you're not seeing. The goal of this message is not that you would resolve to pray more, but is that you would resolve to know God as Father more. That's why I titled our message this morning, Seeing the Who of Prayer. Jesus wants to help you with that this morning. And so he says, when you pray, say what? Father. Good. I think we're going to remember it. Packer adds, to those who are Christ's, The holy God is a loving father. They belong to his family. They they may approach him without fear and always be sure of his fatherly concern and care. This is the heart of the New Testament message. you believe that? God is our father. We didn't take time to read through the rest of our passage in Luke uh, Luke 11, verses 5 through 13. I would encourage you, in fact, challenge you today, before the day is over, just to read the rest of that passage because it all comes in a package as Jesus is teaching on prayer. But I am convinced that the fatherhood of God is the foundation to grasping and understanding the rest of that teaching. Because Jesus wants you and he wanted his disciples to connect to the who of prayer. And that leads me to a question I've been asking myself and I want to ask you as well. 
What does the current state of your own prayer life right now reveal about how you are seeing God today? What about your own private walk with God? Your own patterns of spending time alone with God or not reveal about how you see God this morning. You see, God is pictured in so many ways in the scriptures, isn't he? He is the sovereign. He is the king. He is the ruler. He is the the Lord. You think about all of his mighty attributes. He is all-knowing. He is all-present. He is all-powerful. And yet Jesus wants his disciples, and he said to know him differently. He says to them, you guys can call him Father, Abba. Is God this morning Father to you? Can you call him Father? You know, that's an often misunderstood concept, especially among cultural Christianity. We lived in Italy. We ministered among Roman Catholics. And let me just say emphatically, I love Roman Catholics. I desire sincerely to see them to know the joy of relationship that can be theirs, the assurance of forgiveness and salvation and life and joy in the Lord that can be theirs only through the completed work of Jesus Christ and his work alone, not through any human effort. That's what I want. That's what I long for for them. But I can't tell you how many times I've heard a Roman Catholic friend of mine tell me, well, we're all God's children. Siamo tutti figli di Dio in Italian. We're all God's children. And of course, that's what religion does, isn't it? Religion actually gives people this this false sense of security, that we can find security in, in solidarity. As long as I'm in the big group, as long as I'm with the masses, I can get lost in the numbers, then I don't have to actually face God on my own. I can avoid actually seeing myself individually before this God. I can just say, I'm one of the group. If it's true, I'm covered. We're all children of God. That sounds nice. It sounds inclusive. But friends, it is not true. It's just not true. God is our creator. And as such, he has authority over all of our lives. That is true. But the idea that we are all children of God is not found anywhere in the Bible. Sonship to God is not a universal status. It is not something that you are simply born with. There is only one being in all of eternity that is by nature a son of God. Who is that? It is the eternal son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The gift of sonship can only be ours, not by nature, but through faith. This is clear in the testimony of Scripture. Listen to John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. John writes, but to all who did receive him. Now listen, that means that there were those who didn't receive him. And we know that today there are those who don't and haven't received the Lord Jesus Christ, even in this place this morning. There may be some of you who have not yet received the Lord Jesus Christ. But the testimony of Scripture is those who did receive him, those who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to become children. Children who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God himself. Romans 8, 14 and 7 through 17 actually affirm this idea and take it a little further. Paul writes there in verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Listen, if you want to be, know, know God as a son, you have to be led by the Spirit of God. What does that actually mean? It means you have to follow the Spirit of God, right? To be led, you, mean you have to follow him. 
He goes on, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, can you guess, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What mystery and majesty there is in the adoption into God's family for those who trust in Jesus Christ. We become children of God exclusively as a gift of grace received through faith alone in Christ alone. It is only then that God makes us sons by his Holy Spirit through adoption. If you're here this morning and your life is not patterned after and a passionate and powerful communion with God as your father, it may very well be that he is not your father here this morning. But he can be. He can be. How can you become a child of God today? Well, God has provided a way for you. Rather than being sons of God by nature, instead we are by nature, the Bible tells us, children of wrath. That means children of judgment. Why judgment? Because God is holy. God is righteous. God is perfect. And the very first step step that you need to take if you're here this morning and you do not know God as your father is that you must recognize who God is, not who you might want him to be. So often people say they believe in God. But when you dig a little deeper, you discover that They choose to believe in an image of God that they fashion for themselves, a God that's created after their own likeness and their own minds. And our culture has really perfected this as an art, hasn't it? It seems that the default response of today's society when they are confronted with the inconvenient truths that put them and place them before the accountability before a holy God, their response is simply to change the definitions. And I'm not talking about the social political things that are happening. That's there too. But more importantly, they change the definitions of who God is and who they are. And if you change the definitions, if you destroy language, you can make God whatever you want him to be. And you can make yourself and deceive yourself to think whatever you want to think you are. So the first step toward truly knowing God is to actually abandon your definitions, to abandon society's definitions, and to humbly recognize God for who he is. Hebrews 11.6 actually says it's very clear. The writer of Hebrews says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God. You want to be God's child today? If you want to draw near, first of all, he says, you must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him you got to take him for who he is. And we discover who God is because he's revealed himself through the pages of Scripture. This is why we preach this book here at this church. We preach the Bible so that we can know God. He's your creator. He's holy. And he demands perfection. He demands holiness from every one of us. And you have to come to recognize God for who he truly is. And when you do that, then you will also have to come face to face with who you truly are. And who are you? You are a sinner. You have fallen woefully short of God's standards of perfection. And because of this, God is righteous and he is just to condemn you to eternal hell. That's really bad news. But listen, it's against the backdrop of that bad news that we begin to understand and see the love and the grace and the mercies of God. This God who from all eternity was son, eternal son, who then came into our existence and put on flesh and dwelt among us and walked among us and came on this earth to die for you and for me 
and to bear in his own body the divine and eternal punishment that we deserve. You did the crime, but Jesus paid the fine. Amen? And when you confess, if you confess and and place your trust in this one, in this Jesus as your Lord, as the one who is king, the one who is ruler over all things, and you proclaim your allegiance to him and you give your life to him as the one who died for your sins and was raised from the dead, the testimony of Scripture is that this becomes the good news, that your sins are forgiven and you become a child of God. God will become your father. Is God your father this morning? Because that's the climax of prayer. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I just want to encourage you that if you began this new year in a place where you would say this morning, Ken, I, I don't think I know God that way. I don't think I know him yet as my father. At the conclusion, actually right now, there's people coming down to the front on either side of the stage and they would love to pray with you. They would love to help you understand how today As you start this new year, you can also start a new life. A life as a child of God. And I would encourage you right now, if that's you and you know you need the Lord Jesus Christ, just get up from your seat. Don't worry about what other people think and just go down there and talk. They'll be glad to pray with you and show you how you can know for certain that you are a child of God. But listen, I know there are others here this morning who would say, I know I'm God's child. I know it. I know he's my father, but Ken, if I'm honest, I just feel distant from him right now. I feel dry spiritually. And this really goes back to my question earlier. What does the current state of your prayer life, of your private life with God, reveal about how you are seeing him today? And as I think about it, I can look at so many periods in my life as a Christian where I was super, super busy doing super good things and yet felt so dry, so lethargic, so distant when it came to my own relationship with the Lord. And, you know, I don't know how we do it. I don't know how, how honestly, any of us can pull off following God in today's culture and this sinful world of ours without that time alone with God. I mean, what we do week after week here to sin, what we're doing here this morning, it's wonderful. And there's certainly great growth and benefit for us It's commanded of God that we gather in this way. But listen, there's something different when you meet with God on on your own. I mean, when it's just you and God, it's all about the relationship, isn't it? And I think sometimes we can pull off impressing other people. We can impress them with our words. We can impress them with our busyness. We can project ourselves. We become experts at it. We can project ourselves any way we want to to other people. But when you get alone with God, I think that's the most honest time of the day. When it's you and God alone, none of that other stuff matters. The only thing that matters is what is real. What is real right now in your life between you and God? I believe that there's some of you here this morning who need to see God renewed as your Abba, as your Father. Jesus is inviting you right now to share with him in that beautiful, eternal relationship. When you pray, would you just this morning, would you pray and say, Father? just one word. Maybe God is saying to you this morning, come, spend time with me. Don't let your guilt or your shame keep you from seeing my love for you this morning. Will you go to your Father this morning? And Father, I do pray right now. I pray 
as the Lord Jesus taught us to pray that you would be exalted as holy forever. I pray that you would rule and that you would reign in the hearts and lives of every individual here present today. I pray, Father, that you would tear down the barriers that we have erected between us and you with our idolatrous definitions and that you would help us to see you, Father, as the eternal Son sees you. God, you will not withhold any good gift from us. You have already given us the very best. You've given us the Son. And if you have not spared your own Son, how will you not with him freely give us all things? And so, God, I pray that we would, by your grace and through the power of your Holy Spirit this morning, be renewed in how we see you, the who of prayer. That we'd be a people this year who grow in knowing you more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.